0: Welcome to Success Fundamentals, hosted by myself, Chris Sykes, and my co-host, Brian Gosek. We are on a mission to seek out some of the most successful people in our network that have been able to define what success means to them so you can draw the map of your own path and take your first steps. We hope you enjoy today's episode to get one step closer to your success goals.
1: Hey, everybody, it's Brian. It's Chris Sykes. And we wanted to tell you all about our friends at SalesCast. Back in June of 2021, Chris and I had the idea of starting a podcast, but we really had no idea what to do and how to create one. Luckily, we met our buddies at SalesCast.
0: SalesCast make podcasting so easy, right? So Brian and I had questions about everything the summary, the titling of our shows, the micro content to post on our socials. They literally told us all you have to do is record and we take care of the rest. So for those of you looking for a free strategy session with SalesCast, all you have to do is go to podsesh.com, That's PodSesh.com. Again, it's podsesh.com. Let's start the show. Successors, welcome back to another edition of Success Fundamentals. I am your co-host, Chris Sykes. And I am Brian Goldsack. And today we have a very special guest. This person, I'm pretty sure that you came, uh, you 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 are familiar with his system. He is one of the creators of the Net Promoter System. He is also a partner at Bain & Company, which is a management consulting company. And he is Rob Marquis. Rob, welcome to the show, my friend.
2: Thank you, Chris. Nice to be here.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we, I'm sure Brian and I have a ton of questions, but before we get into your illustrious career, please take us back to where you're from and where all this ambition came from.
2: (laughs) Well, I I grew up in uh, the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio, and my grandfather owned a wholesale meat company. Hmm. And um, my very first job was working for him unloading, you know, boxes of meat from the back of refrigerated trucks and scraping the floors from the Mm. trimmings of the meat as the butchers were preparing it and, uh, observing my grandfather make decisions about how to work with his, his restaurant customers. Mm. And so, um, I think I, you know, between that and a, and a father who is a lawyer, had a couple of role models who worked really hard and um, were really focused on understanding how to satisfy their customers and, you know, do so in a, in a very personal way.
1: What mm. What is your favorite cut of meat after being in that industry for all those years?
2: <laughs> it's funny. You should ask that. I, I made it yesterday. It's, um, it's. i love making barbecue spare ribs as oh. my favorite I, and i can only do it a couple of times a year cuz i just you know it's it's super rich and very tasty but uh, a lot of work I, I i absolutely love that
0: now how how do you prepare do, do you do you grill or do you smoke uh so the 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 way that
2: i've been doing it recently when i make big batches uh, which i did yesterday is I sous vide, I cook them in the sous vide, you know, water bath, um, for like 12 hours. And Uh I do that with a little bit of liquid smoke, which gives a teeny bit of smokiness. Mm -hmm. Then I put a rub on it and, uh, finish it on the grill to get that kind of crust. Yeah.
1: Damn.
2: Um, and so it's, 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 it's almost fall off the bone tender and it's super consistent. Like you don't burn it. You don't, you know, it's a uh, fool. I, I'm, I'm not a great, not a great chef. So it's a really foolproof way to make large quantities and have them all come out. Good.
0: You know, yeah, I, I, why don't we I take loved... a quick
1: break and go get something to eat after that? <laughs> cake, that sounds
0: Delicious. 100%. I, I'm, I'm from the South, Rob. I'm, uh, I'm from Georgia and I'm learning how to perfect uh, spare ribs. I like to mm-hmm. smoke them on, 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 mm-hmm. a, on, a, on a offset smoker. So I'll use, uh, hickory wood. And, um, now that's the real way to cook them. I'm, I'm, I fake it,
2: but you, that's you, what you're doing is the authentic, uh, and, and it makes a very good smoky rib. Uh, that's good.
0: It does. It does. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Successes. He said ribs and my mind just went crazy. I'm sorry.
1: About that. <laughs> Chris is, Chris makes some good ribs. I've, I've had his ribs. Um, so Rob, so you had a background in food service and your father was an attorney, correct?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So those are like, it's kind of like two different industries altogether. So do you feel that both of those industries in some way had lent to your view on uh catering to customers or was one a little bit more formative than the other
2: well I think I think a lot of things I mean I think the example of you know because professional services my father was a, as a lawyer and then um, essentially business to business supply that was very important and then I spent my summers during college as a uh, bellman in a hotel mm-hmm. and also you know very hands-on, Serving customers, And so I'd say all of those things, observing my dad, observing my grandfather, being in a position where I had to personally interact with people and earn every tip that I got were really formative. They were really foundational. And then after college, I went and worked for a company called LexisNexis, which, you know, back in the 80s, before the Internet, was... Um, think of it as the moral equivalent of an ancient version of google but focused on the law Mm. and um we were we were providing uh subscription-based and usage-based services to law firms and news organizations and investment banks and growing super fast uh we were owned by a paper company that was actually growing at like 2 or 3% a year and the thing that that kind of struck me and became maybe the most important foundation of my my focus was we were we were growing you know 10 15 20% a year our executives were getting huge bonuses at, at, you know as you would expect in a company that was you know large parent company that was growing only two or 3% a year mm. and our competitor was growing at about twice our rate. Hmm. So we were losing market share and the, the thing that, and, and we were churning out lots of customers. And I think the thing that really struck me was how business metrics and goals often um, aren't fully aligned with real value creation. And so in a certain way, My whole career has been about trying to figure out how to realign um, an understanding of what it means to earn customer loyalty with what it means to earn value and create value for a business and essentially align shareholder value and customer value in large organizations so that they don't feel like they're in conflict.
0: I I am going to ask a, I'm going to ask a question about that later. Um sure. But, you know because I'm I'm very curious on on what your your viewpoint on that is and how we can kind of, you know, w- pretty much what you do help companies steer so both of those aren't aligned so one person is not being affected um more than the yeah. other. Yeah. Um but before we get into that, I know that you have you've been with Bain & Company for a very long time. You've been, you know, with them for 30 plus years. So obviously you know what you're doing. Um, you know, but how, how does one get into consulting, right? And how did, because being a consultant, from my understanding, you have to be very good at what you do. So when you go into a company, you can kind of help them get, you know, achieve whatever goal that they're trying to achieve in whatever project. So how do you get into a field like that?
2: Well, typically in the large strategy firms like Bain, Boston Consulting Group, McKinsey. Um, Historically, you would be recruited by uh, one of those firms coming out of uh, undergrad or out of business school. I joined out of business school. Um, Increasingly, over the past several years, the firms have opened up a little bit more to um, experts in different domains and different fields who are a little bit more experienced, but the primary way into those firms is real, is still, you know, undergraduate, um, associate programs and business school programs, or, you know, coming out of business school with an MBA.
0: Mm. So in, in terms of getting, in terms of in okay, so in terms of like choosing what you're going to be an expert in to help companies, how do you how do you find that your 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 niche? I would say so. If a company says, "Well, we need help in this," how do they know what to? How do you know what to get into to be as valuable as possible to the consulting company? Well,
2: some of it, some of it is serendipity. Um, when you come into a, a you know, Bain, VCG, McKinsey. As a as an early tenure employee, you get assigned to whatever it is you get assigned to. Mm. Um, there's a certain amount of you, you can express your interest, and you can steer towards the kinds of assignments that you're interested in, whether that's by industry or function or um, topic. What tends to happen is that out of a combination of interest and luck of experience, you develop depth in a few areas. Mm-hmm. And whichever one you you, you sort of get ex- most excited about and get the most opportunities to work in tends to be where you end up focusing. For me, when I came to Bain, I was interested from day one in uh, customer loyalty. And so I asked even before I started, you know, could I get a, an opportunity to work with the teams at Bain that were working on customer retention and customer loyalty? Um, there was a, a, a Bain partner named Fred Reicheld who had published an article in Harvard Business Review while I was a student. And um, I got really excited about that. It resonated with my experience at LexisNexis. And so I got lucky. I got assigned to my very first project was working with him in a bank. And then I, I got assigned to other stuff. And But but a year later, I got assigned to another financial services company working on a similar topic. And then a couple of years after that, another one and another one. And before long, I had accumulated a lot of experience on this. And I had been tackling problems that were very much aligned with what I had originally wanted to do. So it was it was kind of a combo of luck and interest. Um, okay. and, and I think that by continuing to focus on that, and by being curious about it and reading about things well beyond my project experience and seeking out opportunities to observe other companies or other people interview folks, I was able to gather a lot of um, experience and knowledge in an area that not many people had been focused on.
1: Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned that customer value should serve as the North Star for corporate priorities. Now, the the term customer value, is that something that you feel is universally applicable or does it differ depending upon the products or services that that corporation provides.
2: Let me start by um, widening the aperture for just one second, and and sort of defining how I think about customer value. Customer value is, is two things. It's the value that you deliver to customers, and it's the value of the customer. So you earn, you earn, customer loyalty by delivering value. And in doing so, you also earn the customer's business and therefore profitability and longevity retention, if you will. Yeah. Um, you earn the opportunity to satisfy more of their needs or or to do to earn more of their business. And if you're doing it well, customers should then be very happy to share value back with you in the form of fees or purchases or whatever. So the concept of customer value is, is 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 the very essence of any business. Sure. You know going back to ancient trade like it's right. Yeah, you, you you deliver value to somebody, they pay you for it. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: Um you do it well enough, they come back. You do it well, you do it even better, they start telling their friends and re- encouraging them to do business with you. percent. Right. So um, the, the reason that this concept is important in today's world is because as businesses got bigger, you know, and, and I'm excuse me if I get a little kind of uh, academic here for a second. But if you go, you know, you go all the way back into the Industrial Revolution and then the birth of the modern corporation in the 20th century. As businesses got bigger, as they got more complex, business owners moved from being, you know, the individual who created the value and delivered it directly to the customer and talked to the customer to being removed several steps.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Ultimately, where to the point where business owners were separate entity shareholders versus management and even management, CEOs and C-level executives were several steps of the organization away from customers. So a lot of organizations got very internally focused. um, And there was a movement in the the late 60s through the 70s to reestablish, because management had been viewed as sort of perpetuating itself, In the late sixties, early seventies, Milton Friedman and several other people um, proposed a new way of thinking about business that they called shareholder capitalism, or you know, manage the business for shareholder value. And they made that the prime objective of every company. And then there were in the 80s hostile takeovers by um, these sort of you know vulture investors who came in to, uh, yeah, to undermine management who had seized these companies for their own good. I think what you see today is a shift, um, away from shareholder capitalism, away from shareholder value towards what some people would call stakeholder value, what other people would call, uh, conscious capitalism. And what I Um, I I think there's a slightly different take on it, which is we're headed towards what I call customer capitalism, where um, with the benefit of social media, the benefit of technology, the benefit of the ability to see and understand customers and basically connect leadership of an organization straight through to customers and their their experiences. Um, businesses can be run once again as if you knew every single customer and were dealing with them individually and per- personally. Wow. And as a result, um, you can you can think about the objective of the business, not just being to create value for shareholders, but to create value for customers such that the customers become so valuable that shareholders benefit. And in doing that, if you're really creating value for shareholders, you're also behaving in ways that, uh, sorry, for for customers, you're also behaving in ways that customers approve of because customers hold companies accountable for the way they treat employees, the way that they run their value chain, the extent to which they are good members of the community.
0: 100%. I I think that. I think that companies, especially in today's climate, I think that companies, if they start shipping to the the customer capitalism mind frame, I think their business would explode. Honestly, because yes, of course you're supposed to. Well, they are. You know, they're they're already successful in terms of the society's eyes. But if you look at it from a shareholder standpoint, yes, shareholders mean that you have a stake in the company, so you have interest in the company. So mm-hmm. you know, you want the value of your stake to appreciate in value. But then if you look at it from if you if you look at it through that lens, right, the customer capitalism lens, you know that the more value you bring to your customers and clients, the more valuable and more loyal your customer fan base is. Right. And then, like you said, somebody has a good interaction with that particular business because they have these values in place and they care about the the end user that just spreads like wildfire. Then you you develop this community. Then you're able to just appreciate that value in your ownership that much more if you focus. You got it, Chris. Right. So yeah, you got it. 100. So I think that you know those line of events. If more companies have, I, I call it human consciousness, right? You know, and then you know, can if you can continue to do that, I mean, you're. The, your business value has no choice but to go up in value. Um, so I do have I do have a quick question about, because Rob, you obviously were doing something right because you were named partner in Bain Company in December of 1996. And one of the things uh, we like to teach our audience is whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a business person trying to climb the corporate ladder, or whether you're in the arts, whatever you may be, there are some fundamental traits that you need to have in order to reach that level of success. However you define that. Right. So based off, based off of your experience, what would you say fundamentally helped you, you know, go from, go from, you know, the job where you started at LexisNexis to, I think you were on the board of New York city and then to Bain and and company and allow you to, you know, continue to give value, get, get named partner and then become this ultra successful business person what would you say fundamentally helped you get there
2: be lucky that's the first thing <laughs> be in the okay. right place at the right time i you know that i was it, to be honest like i was born into a good situation i got lucky and and got in and I, well i was my parents sent me to a great school. I got lucky and got into a great college. I had a really weird and awesome experience in my first uh, real job after college. Mm-hmm. Somehow I managed to get into business school. Like all that stuff. Yes, there was hard work in there, but a lot of it was I I rolled the dice and I, and I got lucky. I think the second thing, is I've always tried to control what I can control and acknowledge and accept that there are things outside of my control. So I can't control that the admission officer at the business schools I applied to or the colleges I applied to was having a bad day. Cannot control that. What I can do is invest as much as possible in creating the best application I can and think about if I were them. What would I be looking for in a student when I was interviewing for jobs? Again, you know, you can't you get you get assigned a, an interview slot. The the slot uh, at the end of the day is not a great slot because the interviewer is tired. So when you're interviewing for jobs, you can't control whether um, you get the you know sort of worst slots in the day. You, you just don't know what you can do, though, is prepare by thinking about, well, how do they tend to do their interviews? What are they looking for? What about my experience is relevant? Um, What kind of characteristics are they looking for? And what stories can I tell to help describe that? Um, When you're working, you know, it's hard to say this in, it's easy to say in hindsight, things like, oh, you you know, you work hard and you focus on the right things. the truth is that the, maybe the best things you can do include being really open to feedback and trying to overcome human nature and avoid being defensive when you get feedback that hurts a little bit sure. you know and, and and learn from it at one point i, I was told by well I, i'll tell you a story i i uh, had I was on a project where we were looking at a uh, an acquisition candidate for a company. And the executives of our client uh, knew that the target company was largely controlled by the family of the company, the, the target company's founders, even though it was a publicly traded company. And they had the hypothesis that the family would never sell the business. And so, my job was, part of my job was to research the family and try to understand what would it take to convince them to sell the business. And I, I went, you know, like I went, I went all out. Like I learned everything I could about the family. I knew who owned how many shares. I went to their hometown and did research in the library back before there was, again, before there was internet <laughs> to do these searches uh, on each of the individuals in the family. And you know, what they had done and and so on. And so um, I knew everything back and forward. And when the meeting came where we were having this discussion with the client, one of them challenged me and said, you know, I think you're wrong because of X, Y, and Z. And I very proudly said, no, that's not true. Here's the 18 reasons why, you know, I've got this nailed. And we walked out of the meeting as as a a project team and i'm i'm walking on air i'm thinking man i just nailed it i've i've i absolutely blew them out of the water with my knowledge of this thing Mm -hmm. and the partner on the project turned to me and he said it said never do that again and i'm like what he said you eviscerated that guy you embarrassed him in front of his boss there was no need for you to do that. You could have done that in a much kinder way and still achieved the objective. But instead you were so focused on spouting off all of your knowledge that you didn't take into account that this guy had stuck his neck out to make a statement and you were embarrassing. Him. Mm. And it just hadn't occurred to me. Like I thought this was all about wow. knowing my stuff and being, you know, if I had gotten defensive about it, and said, look, I was just doing the job you told me to do, I might not have learned the lesson. And, and to be fair, you know, there've been plenty of times in my career after that where I've still screwed up that way. Like that's kind of a natural instinct of mine. But that lesson stuck with me so hard because it was painful and difficult. And it was probably one of the most important pieces of feedback I ever got.
1: So- What would you say the lesson was?
2: Oh, that it's not always about being right or getting to the right answer or getting the decision made in the right way. A lot of what makes you successful in effecting change is earning the trust of the people that you're working with. Mm. And patience is often a virtue. You think, you know, the fastest way from point A to point B is a straight line. Well, that's fine. That, that might be true right this second, but you will get snapped back to point a by the blowback from the emotional response that you create. If you're not thinking about it. Hmm. And I've watched this now, you know, I, I now see this in more junior people that I, I mentor. And they get really focused on, I got to get this decision made in this way. We got to get, you know, this is the right thing to do. And they're not wrong, but you have to take into account, why is it that smart, thoughtful, well-meaning people didn't already do what you think is so obvious? What hmm. is, is it because they are personally threatened by that? Is it because they have facts that run counter to what, you know, from their mind, run counter to what you think is the right thing to do? Have, do they have experience that seems to run counter? What, what is it? don't just assert the answer and and you know try to overwhelm them with facts and analysis understand their point of view it, it deep empathy I think the like 18 different ways I would say empathy and an understanding of where uh, your clients your customers your bosses are coming from why you know what what makes them feel that way that is, probably one of the most important capabilities you can develop.
0: You no, know Brian, hold on, but before your question, I, I would just want to comment on that. You're 100% right, Rob, in terms of, so in, in the profession where I was asked to speak a couple of weeks ago to a new group of professionals that, that came in and I had to learn this the hard way too, but like you said, what we're taught, the old school way of acquiring a client or a customer is to just to ask, 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 right? And to immediately try to close that person. So I told them, one, put yourself in their shoes, but then two, think about, like I forgot the, the exact word you said, you said emotional response, I think you said. Um, think about the longevity of that quick sale. the The, the lifetime value of that client or customer is immediately stopped if they do business with you because it would never talk to anybody about you or refer you out because of how they felt doing business with you. So if you think that the fastest way is from point A to point B, that's not the fastest way. That's actually the quickest way because you're going to continue to do the exact same thing to just, just to sustain yourself as opposed to being human about it. Forget what you think, you know, ask them why, like ask them questions. And then you're able to that relationship right then, like you said, be patient. You have now you have a lifelong client or a customer who is willing to tell people about you because of how you treated them. It wasn't just, oh, you have this and I want this. I'm going to try to impress you and close you in the room. No, it's not about that. It's about how these people feel because they feel right. You don't even have to ask for a referral. They'll just tell people about you as opposed to getting that quick sale. And then immediate that immediate value of that of that client or customer is immediately done from the jump.
2: Hmm.
0: So, Rob,
1: the, the the value and the beauty of having you as a guest is not only are you independently successful in your own right, but the nature of your industry also reflects upon what other businesses can do in their own right to be successful, and this idea of customer-centered capitalism is really resonating with me. Uh, For example, my family, um, they're bakers. I I come from a family bakery, and every transaction, it's it's either my mother or my father very closely interacting with the customer. So when you're saying that, uh, I think to myself, well, yeah, obviously it's got to be customer-centric, but I guess in a way that's not necessarily true when you start to expand out to bigger and bigger corporations so uh, how do you or what what is some real practical advice that you can give our our listeners today on as your business begins to grow how do you keep that i, I don't know I, the, the the phrase i almost want to say is old world charm to a business
0: the more successful and big it gets the baker is amazing by the way just so you all know
2: <laughs> i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to come uh, try some of the the bakery's <laughs> goods at some point
1: for sure the danish
2: it, it, brian i think it's a really good challenge um, a lot of it has to do with maintaining the closeness that you have to customers even as you grow like what we would call customer intimacy so for Damn. example um are you collecting feedback from customers? And I'm not saying surveys. I'm saying, are you asking customers for feedback in a dialogue with enough frequency that you're getting the straight scoop from them, not the scoop filtered through your frontline salespeople or, you know, your store staff? Um, Are you engaging in that dialogue in in an open and honest way Where you're giving the customers an opportunity to share how well you did and where they see opportunities for improvement and what they wish you would do differently and do that without defensiveness and judgment, without assuming a framework for them. Um, And where you don't necessarily commit to do everything they ask you to do. But you try to dig in and understand the underlying needs that they're expressing, and the underlying um, opportunities that that present to you. So, the, the starting point is really truly understanding your customers, how they're responding to the way that you're doing business with them, and what it is they wish you would do more of or or less of. Mm. Like a second thing is, in, as the organization gets bigger. Putting your employees in a position where they can succeed in serving customer needs exceptionally well, Mm -hmm. and where they know it, and they get the benefit of feedback from customers about that, and they get the positive reinforcement that comes from serving customers with excellence, that's super inspirational. That creates a, a, a honestly, it, it creates an environment in which employees feel like they can be creative, and come to work with enthusiasm and energy, and apply that creativity towards serving customers even better, or making the work environment better for fellow employees.
0: You no, know, Rob, you it, this, it's almost scary how I'm, I'm 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 sensing a trend, but I'm also connecting the dots, and it's almost scary how. Based from you know where your grandfather and your father, they're very client and customer focused. To you had this, not you, you know Frank. I, I don't want to. right Reichheld. Right uh, Fred it?
2: Fred Reichheld. Yes. Fred
0: Fred right, Reichheld. He had a um, huge influence on you to the point to where, if you look at if you look back through your life and what you and your team were you know, created, which is the Net Promoter System. It almost it's almost like the divine, it's almost like <laughs> d- d- you were meant to, you were put on this earth to create a system like that. Because if you, if you, if you look back at what we actually in the beginning, who influenced you the most, and then you created the net, you and your team created the net promoter system, which literally transformed business itself. And it almost, it, it's, it's almost mind blowing. So can you walk us through how that system and that idea sparked into the net promoter system, which pretty much has all types of arms now. But how did that initial thought come up and how did you create that into, you know, how and how it's used in the business world today? Well, it,
2: it like a lot of things, um, it'd be easy to tell the story as, an, you know, A, then B, then C, then D. And they all logically followed each other when, in fact, um, it was a little bit of a winding road there was a little bit of uh, wandering around in funny directions. It started with a search for a set of metrics that you could hold leadership teams accountable to that would balance the tendency of organizations to be too short term focused, too product focused, too um, functional, functionally focused. So you know, that started with, well, what are some hard metrics we could put in place that would uh, strike that balance? How about churn, the, the attrition of customers? Let's, let's look at customer retention as the goal. Hold on to your customers for, for a long time. And back in the early 90s, we wrote a lot about the economic value of holding on to customers longer. The challenge with that is that, um, we ran into two big problems. One, by the time a customer leaves your business and you know, it, it's been months typically since they, you actually lost them. Mm. And the actions that led to losing them or the interactions that led to losing them may have occurred months or years before that. So it was very backward looking and it was very hard to, to, act on in a timely way. It also didn't differentiate between customers who are worth a lot more and customers who are worth a lot less. Some hmm. people spend a lot in a category and some people spend a lot less. So that led us to think about share of wallet and engagement. Challenge with share of wallet, of course, was, well, how do I know how much of a wallet you have, how big a wallet you have? Sure, how, sure how, exactly. how, and how do I know what share I have of that wallet? Um, so then we started to say, well, okay, we could just ask the customers. And so we developed some customer surveys that were designed to reveal, number one, um, how, how loyal are you likely to be to this company? What kind of experience are you having? What are you, what are you, do you think you're going to continue to do business with them so on and so forth. And number two, how big is your wallet? And those surveys got bigger and bigger as we figured out how to get more and more accurate on both those dimensions. Mm. Of course, the problem with that is response rates get low and you only get a subset of the customers. And not only that, but the minute you start asking a lot of questions of a customer, um, you get management teams picking apart all the questions and saying, well, wait a minute, we were really good on this question and not so good on this one. And then they focus on the one they're really good on. Like they just can't help themselves. Yeah. And so, you know, and I'm, I'm describing many years of stuff in in a somewhat condensed way that, that led us down this path of saying, you know, what if we could find just one question that would give us an understanding of, the likely trajectory of the customer relationship, the customer's loyalty, their, uh, the the things that drive customer value, customer lifetime value, how long they'll stay, how much they'll buy, whether they'll refer you, whether they'll be lower cost to serve. What if we could do that? And we could get just a little bit from them about why. And that led us to explore a whole bunch of different questions that like, what's the one question that would get you there? And that led to this likelihood to recommend question, which was the one that empirically best predicted whether customers would stay longer, buy more, tell their friends, be low cost to serve, um, which became the basis for the net promoter score. Are
1: we allowed to know that question or is that
2: like, oh, yeah, no, we wrote, about, we wrote about it back in 2003. <laughs> it's 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 simple, it's just how likely would you be, Brian, to recommend my company, my product, my service to your friends or colleagues or relatives?
1: I've seen that,
2: and it, it's scored on a zero to 10 scale. Zero is not at all likely, 10 is extremely likely, and it just turns out that empirically, people who answer nine or 10 tend to be what we call promoters. They do stay longer. They buy more. They tell their friends. People who answer zero through six tend to be detractors. They do just the opposite. People who answer seven or eight are what we call passively satisfied. They're not going to go, you know, encourage somebody else to do business with you, but they're not going to discourage. They're not gonna leave you tomorrow, but they might leave if a competitor offered something better. Mm. Sure, sure. Right? They're not super resilient. But they're they're If you ask them how satisfied they are, they'd be like, perfectly satisfied.
0: Yeah.
1: Interesting.
2: So so that that net promoter score, which is the aggregate of you know, how many customers gave you nines or 10s? What percent of customers gave you nines or 10s minus what percent gave you zero through six? Um, which we showed that that was correlated with company growth rates versus competition that was all great we and we got a lot of clients starting to use that to measure their success the problem was it's a little bit like if I went to the gym I, I said I want to get stronger and somebody said well here's here's what you do measure the circumference of your biceps <laughs> And do it really accurately, but just with one tape measure. Here's, a, right, here's the one tape measure to use. I'd be like, okay, great. And if all I did was measure, <laughs> nothing would happen. I have to go to the gym. I have to work out. I have to do all kinds of different types of uh, exercises in order to get stronger. And the measuring the circumference of my biceps might be a good indicator of the gain in strength, but it's not. it's a proxy for the real thing just like Net Promoter Score is a proxy for what you really want.
0: 100%. So
2: um, that's where we developed the system is to bring feedback to individuals in the organization so that they could learn from it and take action on it consistent with growing the value of those customer relationships.
0: That is genius. Um,
2: Wow. We got to
1: get deep, Chris. We got only 10 minutes left with Rob. So we got some heavy hidden questions to ask you before you go.
0: Yeah, 100%. Go ahead, Brian.
1: Well, the first thing Chris normally asks this question, but I'll ask, uh, you know, this is Success Fundamentals. The goal of this show not only is to help people understand success, but also to get the definitions of what our successful people consider success so in your own best words what is your vision of success how do you know when you've achieved success
2: to me success is a balanced life that is happy Um, to me success as a bonus success is making an impact in the world so the way i've always thought about career success was I want to be in the place where, given what I know, given my experience, my expertise, I'm able to add the most value to the world and make the most positive change, the most positive impact on people and businesses and so on. But the the limiter on that is that I also want to have, I want to raise responsible, happy, thoughtful citizens as my kids and i want to make people in my personal life feel like they too are successful and happy and i want to do good things in the community to kind of pay it forward uh, to enable other people to add value thank you so I don't know if that's too complicated a definition.
0: But. No, it's, it's beautiful because, again, we're, Brian said, said it best. He said that what we're, we're on the mission to do two things. He, he defined it as a success case study um, because, you know, as you know, Rob, in this world, a lot of things from, from a successful standpoint is surrounded by materialism. But, you know, we've all seen people uh, that have all the material things, but are still unhappy and they still don't know what it is. So it it can't be that right. So then also too, if you're trying to achieve success, however, you define it, there's certain things that you need to be prepared for, or have you need, need to learn these attributes to start your journey, right? You're going to trip up and fall. That's a part of the journey, right? That's just a part of it. So if you're if you're, if you set out to do something, let's just say you're a painter and you, you think that you this is your masterpiece, and then you put it out for the world to see, and you don't get any comments, you don't get any likes, you don't get any sales. If you can't sustain that, then you're not gonna go far on your journey because that's a part of it, right? It's also, it's two sides to, to, to success. And actually the beauty is in the journey, right? The beauty is not in the destination. The destination is, is what you did to get there, but the journey is where the real magic happens.
2: I I would say that um, there's no amount of material success that will make up for feeling like you you failed to make other people's lives better. Mm. And I will also say that there have been moments in my life where I have not lived up to my own ideals, my own values. And, you know, do I regret some of those? Of course. Do I try to learn from them? Absolutely. But I think that's, you you know, if you're too hard on yourself for those moments when not just you don't create the most beautiful masterpiece, but also you just don't live up to your own values. If you're too hard on yourself, you don't learn. Mm. We all make mistakes. Yeah. Um, The key is don't make the same mistake too many times.
0: 100%. Now, Rob, there's two bombs we like to drop. Brian normally asks this question, but I'm going to act it this time since we kind you of You guys the are role. reversing roles. Today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we, we, we ask these two questions and we keep them intentionally vague for, you know, for you to think and, you know, you know, for, for thought. So the first question is, what is your overall perception of money? Second is, what is your overall perception of power? I don't even know. I don't even
2: know how to, uh, how do I, how do I uh, even approach that? Um, I don't even want, I I think that money is a, um, it's a way to exchange value. And to me, the essence of the whole deal is making other people's lives better. So in, in small ways and in large ways and money, you, you earn money by making other people's lives better. You spend money, hopefully in an attempt to make your own life a little better. So
0: yeah.
2: I feel like it's a, it's a, a means to an end. Um, and that end to me is, is about enriching people's lives. What was the second part of the question?
0: What is your overall perception of power? Power. Power. Here it
2: comes. I, I actually, I don't, I think power is an illusion, honestly. Oh, um, okay. I think that, that there are various forms of power. They all ultimately boil down to influence. And... um what you see is people who wield power too aggressively are almost always overthrown at some point whether mm. that's in 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 companies or in governments or in social organizations people who who wield power irresponsibly or too aggressively at some point get such a backlash that they that they lose it or at least lose some measure of it Mm. so to me, the essence of power is the ability to continue to earn the trust and respect of those over whom you have influence or power.
0: Oh, Oh, that's beautiful. OK, that's beautiful. that,
2: that, That is not a well thought out perspective. By the
0: way. <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. It, we 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 want it raw and, and authentic, so we we appreciate that. Uh we know that you're you have to go you're very busy man. So where, where can people find you? Um and do you have anything upcoming that you want to tell our audience?
2: Well, you can find me e- most easily in two places. I have a little website robmarkey.com that makes it easy to find uh, all the stuff. Um or you can go to Bain and Company. Um, bain.com and um, if you search on my name you'll find a whole boatload of the professional stuff there
0: fantastic Excellent. thank you brian take us home with rent
1: well thank you so much rob for joining us today it was really a pleasure having you you have a, you have an excellent voice by the way for podcasting we're gonna have to get you back on the show 100 um, it has to be a part two <laughs> it's gotta be a part two So uh, that concludes another episode of Success Fundamentals. We will see you all next time. This concludes another episode of Success Fundamentals. We hope you found today's discussion useful to your life in some way. Please remember to like, comment, and subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook.